Well, good morning, North Wake. <clears throat> you out there? Man, what a beautiful song. It's hard to follow up that after. That, that's, a, that's a message in itself. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 19. As we consider Jesus' third word from the cross. John chapter 19. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. How do you respond when you're suffering? When you're suffering, what kind of response do you normally give? A lot of times it depends on the nature of our suffering and the context of our suffering. So I read about a, a man from New York who was in Texas. And he collided with a truck carrying a horse. Sorry, Abby, this does not end well for the horse. A few, a few months later, he tried to collect damages for his injuries. The insurance lawyer said, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're claiming you have injuries? That's not what the police report said. The police report said that you were not hurt. And so this man replies, he says, look, I was lying on the road in a lot of pain. And I heard someone say that the horse had a broken leg. The next thing I know, this Texas Ranger pulls out his gun and shoots the horse. And then he asked, turns and asks me, are you okay? <laughs> Response to suffering sometimes depends on the nature of the suffering and the context of the suffering. On a more serious note, we look at the third word of Jesus from the cross, of course, in the context of his ultimate suffering. And we, what we see is his suffering is not simply a model for us, but it really demonstrates profound truths about who he is and really what he has accomplished for us. And so as we, in this series, look at the seven words of Jesus from the cross, Two weeks ago, Pastor Larry looked at the first two words of Jesus, words in the sense of sayings of Jesus, right? The word of forgiveness to his enemies. As Jesus prays, and we saw it in that song, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus' word of salvation to the dying thief on the cross beside him when he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this morning we're going to be looking at the third word, known as the word of affection, that Jesus offers to Mary when he says, Woman, behold your son. And standing there is also John, the apostle, and he says to John, Behold your mother. And so as we... Look at this passage before I read it. You'll see in, in verse 25 there are, there are four women there. And this, of course, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And he's the chief criminal in the, in the midst of them. And these four soldiers, they divide up Jesus' clothes. And they realize that one of them is uh, one fabric. And so instead of dividing it up, they, they cast lots. And yet there are four women there who express their loyalty and their love 
to Jesus. In contrast to the four greedy soldiers who are out to get his clothes, these women have come to see their Lord as he suffered in pain and in agony. And it's also in contrast to the disciples. Matthew tells us that all the disciples left him and fled. They all scattered. One of those disciples makes his way back. We learn that the apostle John. But it's amazing that throughout the gospels, it's the women that often excel as followers of Jesus. They are the ones who are often faithful. We see that here even when the disciples flee. And so these four women along with John, the beloved disciple, are there with their abandoned Lord as he suffers. And so we read that there's Mary, Jesus' mother. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, she's never referred to as Mary. It's always the, the mother of Jesus. And she's there in, in pain that would be difficult to imagine. The, the horror of her son being crucified on the cross. Naked, exposed, and shamed. And yet there she is. As her heart feels the, the weight of this, I would imagine that the, the prophecy of Simeon, remember when they entered the temple when Jesus was born, and Simeon, 30 years earlier at the temple, he says to Mary, and a sword will pass through your own soul also. And now she realizes the weight of that, what that looks like. But she was there with her son, with the love that only a mother possesses. I like what A.W. Pink says when he commenting on this. He says, his disciples may desert him, his friends may forsake him, his nation may despise him, but his mother is there where all might see her, see her near him in death as in birth. Who can fully appreciate the heart of a mother? But not only is Mary there, it says that his mother's sister was there. That would be Jesus' aunt on his mother's side. And then it lists Mary, the wife of Clopas. According to church tradition, we don't know for sure, but according to church tradition, Clopas was the brother of Joseph, Mary's husband. And so this would have been Jesus' aunt on his mother's side. So there you have his mother and two of his aunts. And then it says also Mary Magdalene. This is the Mary that Jesus cast out seven demons. She was a prominent disciple of Jesus in the early church. Indeed, she is the first one to the tomb on that Sunday morning. John tells us in the next chapter that she was there first. And she goes and tells Peter and John and they have a foot race to the tomb. And so the text this morning, starting in verse 25, but standing by the cross. And, and you see the but there is this, there are soldiers there, but, but the women. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray together.
Father, we, we praise you for these unfathomable words of Jesus from the cross that in one sense are so simple we, can, we, we, can't, we can't miss the meaning and yet are so profound we could never fully comprehend their depths. And so, Father, we do pray for mercy that we would have eyes to see the beauty of Christ, that our ears would be ready to listen and our hearts would be ready to receive your truth this morning. Father, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and attend to us so that we might be faithful in our response to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's Jesus after praying for his enemies and after speaking the word of salvation to the thief on the cross, he now addresses his mother and John. And so I just have two simple points this morning related to first Jesus' words to his mother, Mary, and then Jesus' words to John. So first of all, Jesus' words to Mary, his mother. Demonstrate, these words demonstrate his concern for his family. You see, while on the cross, Jesus considered the needs of others more than his own needs. And he calls out to his mother to provide for her because he is no longer able to do that. Because after his death, resurrection, he will ascend to heaven. He told the disciples this already. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, sometimes people are a little taken aback. Why did he address her as woman? Well, we know that this is, this is not an, a rude or demeaning uh, address to Mary. As a matter of fact, later on, in the next chapter, when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, the angels address Mary Magdalene as woman. But what we do see here is Jesus' care and concern for his mother. That he entrusted his mother to the beloved disciple, John, to care for her needs. I like what D.A. Carson when he's explaining the meaning of this text, he says, Jesus displays his care for his mother as both she and the beloved disciple are passing through their darkest hour. Not only was it Jesus' darkest hour, but it was certainly their darkest hour as well. He said, it is most natural to see in verses 26 and 27 an expression of Jesus' love and care for his mother, a thoughtful provision for her needs at the hour of supreme devastation. You might ask, well, where were the other members of Jesus' family to provide for, for Mary? In other, in other words, why did Jesus leave Mary to John's care? Didn't she have other family members? Well, we, the assumption is at this point, and this is pretty, con, it's a consensus, that at this point, Joseph, Mary's husband, had died and left her a widow. And we are told that Jesus had brothers. Uh, I think these were his actual brothers, not uh, some say his cousins. Um, why didn't they provide for her needs? Well, 
Jesus, as the oldest brother, had res- as the oldest son, had responsibility to care for his parents. And it's possible at this point, John tells us at this point, his brothers did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so it's possible that he simply didn't entrust them, trust his, his mother to them, and instead to the apostle John. But what we have here in this amazing demonstration of love of Jesus, this amazing demonstration of compassion and concern for his mother, especially in light of the context. If you go back and read John chapters 18 and 19, you remember that after celebrating the Lord's Supper, that, that the Passover supper with his disciples, then Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples, by Judas. He, a mob comes out and he's arrested by this mob. He's bound by soldiers. He's questioned before the high priest. He's struck by an officer. Then he's questioned by Pilate. And then you know the rest. He's, he's flogged and mocked and beaten, crucified, and stripped naked. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I have a headache, I want people to, to acknowledge this and serve me. When I'm suffering only a little bit, I, I, I want the attention to me and my needs. But here's Jesus on the cross, sees his mother faithfully there, and he says a word to her so that her needs would be met. This isn't the only time that Jesus is looking out for others. Remember the, the first thing he says from the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And then he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In his life, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And he exemplifies how we should care and love our family. At a minimum, this, this text shows us that we have responsibility to care for our parents. You know, the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. And guess what? That's repeated in the New Testament time and time again, usually by Jesus himself. And Paul, he clarifies this command. I think he, he explains it uh, in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially for members of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever we have a responsibility to provide for our parents to care for them in their hour of need or for any member of our family and and i have seen in this church i have seen beautiful examples of this i know of families who had to return from the mission field to take care of parents who were sick and dying. Families who move to different homes to uh, make sure that they can provide for the, their, their, their parents if, as they move in with them and, and care for them. And families who, who visit their aged parents and care for them. So I challenge you, if the need arose, when the need arises, are you willing to do this? Is there a need even now 
that you've been kind of pushing off. And one of the things that we see in Jesus' example here is that we have a responsibility to provide for our family. And what a savior we have that even during his greatest hour of need, he's looking out for his mother. And so he says to Mary, Mary, behold your son. But we also see in this Jesus' word to John, which I think demonstrate the creation of a, of a new family. You might call it a faith family. The family of God, the people of God, the church. There's more than just the physical family. And in Jesus' teaching, the faith family often trumps the physical family. Remember what Peter said, oh, we, Jesus, we've left father and sister and mother to follow you. We've left them to follow you. Why? Because it's worth leaving anything to follow Jesus. But Jesus says to him, oh, no, wait, I will give you brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so he's talking about the church. You see, Jesus' words confirm the establishment of a new family. He says to John, behold your mother. Mary was not his mother, nor was he Mary's son. And yet he says, he says these things. Because as followers of the Messiah, we are united to one another through faith in Christ. And we become part of the family of God. Interestingly, when, when Jesus does address Mary as woman, it's possible that also relates to this idea of a, of a faith family because it's not the first time that Jesus referred to Mary as woman. Remember earlier in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana of Galilee? And Mary informs Jesus, probably knew, I think, right, uh, that they were running out of wine and, and then Jesus' response is, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And he's speaking in the context of him being the Messiah. My, my hour, my time has not yet come. And now at the end of the, the gospel, he addresses her as woman. Again, this, this concept of Jesus creating a new family is, is not new. It's not the first time that we see this. Earlier in the gospels, for example, in chapter 3 of Mark, it says, this is a great story, right? You've got, it says his mother and his brothers came. Notice there, no mention of his father. Probably at this point, had, at early point, he probably had died. We don't know for sure. But they came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Hey, we've got some insider connection here. We're going to use this to our advantage. Tell him, hey, tell Jesus, mother and brothers are outside. You know, we've got this, right? The crowd was sitting around and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, oh, then I better get out there quickly. No. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? He's redefining the family, this more important family. He says, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, it's you, here are my brother my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus establishes this, this new family. 
and those that recognize him as the Messiah who do the will of God are part of this family. He is the Lord over the family because it's about him. It's always in relation to him. Do you confess him as Lord? Do you follow him? Do you keep his commands? And so Jesus is the the Lord over this family. And as his family, we are subject to follow him. Even Mary. You see, Mary is not to be elevated beside Jesus, as some do, as a co-ruler or co-mediator. This is the doctrine of some in the Roman Catholic Church, that Mary becomes elevated. Why? Because part of the reason is she bore Jesus, and she's addressed here from Jesus. Jesus addresses her first on the cross. And then she's then viewed as the spiritual mother of the church. But listen, to, to pray to Mary, to worship Mary, or to see her as co-reigning with Jesus in heaven is not found in the Bible. Interestingly, some want to pray to Mary because the idea is that she is more compassionate. But in this, in this text, we can see that Nothing is said about Mary's compassion, although it is demonstrated as she's there with her son. But really, it's the words of Jesus that demonstrate compassion and affection for her in her moment of need. Jesus is the great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so, you know, the only other time that Mary is mentioned after this in the Bible is in the beginning of Acts. When the, the very beginning of Acts in chapter one, the disciples all gather together for prayer. And she was just one among many praying in this meeting. Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And praise God, his brothers are there. They had a change of heart. They recognized who Jesus was. You see, John doesn't, John doesn't make much of Mary. In fact, Mary is the one who is to be cared for by John. Right? What does the text say? And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. From that hour, John is the one who took care of Mary. And so Jesus is the creator and the king of this this new family that we're a part of. You see, we can become children of God. Isn't that what John says in John 1, verse 12? Those receive him who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. We are the children of God. We are adopted into his family. And at the same time, Jesus is the unique Son of God. You see this testimony in John the Baptist in the beginning of John. He says, and I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. The middle of the gospel, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And at the very end of John, John himself testifies These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. See, it's in his name that we have life. He is the unique son of God. There is none like him, although we are part of his family and become children. So he is the unique son, and, and his disciples and even his own family are the children of God by means of what he has accomplished for us. But he's not only the unique son of God, he is the exalted son of God. This passage in, in Ephesians 1 is, uh, is incredible because if you were describing the elevated, exalted status of Jesus, this is the only person I could think who could come close to writing something like this who wouldn't be inspired would be Daniel just because he's got that Creswellian stuff going on. But this is amazing what Paul says here. He, he, he starts when Christ is dead and buried and resurrected. Now when you're dead and buried, you're, you're, you're below ground, right? And Christ was in the cave. But he says God's work, uh, he's talking about God's power. It worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay, so there he's, at the, he's in the ground. He's raised from the dead. And then what? He seated him at his right hand. Wow. You could have he could stop right there and that would be incredible. But he goes on to say, in the heavenly places. Well, what, 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 what's so big about that? Well, let me tell you. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He could have just said rule, just pick one of those. He picked, no, we're going we're gonna to emphasize this. And above every name that is named, name and name, he's above it. He says, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Later on, somebody has another name. Nope, Jesus is still above it. And he put all things, notice there, the, it's all things, not some things, all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the exalted son of God. Because of his defeat of sin and death, which was confirmed by his resurrection, he has now been certified the exalted son of God. And see, here's, here's the point I'm getting at. If he was full of care and compassion while on the cross and and is concerned about his mother, how much more now in his exalted status is he concerned for us? And, and he's able to provide because of who he is for our needs. He, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And because he is the good shepherd, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. But even more so, he's the interceding son of God. He makes prayers, intercession for his people. Even on the cross, we see this demonstrated when he prays for those who do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. That's who he is. He is the great high priest. And the priest's duty was to mediate between God and and men. So the writer of Hebrews states, chapter 7, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's who he is. Like that hymn, you know, I'm sure you know it, before the throne of God above. He says, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You see, Jesus' statement His statement to to Mary and to John are intended to establish the true nature of of this family, this faith family. That he is the unique son, but he brings us in through adoption into this family. And if Jesus demonstrated care and concern for his mother in her hour of need, how much more will he show care and concern for his children, his disciples And if he could do this while on the cross in this moment of his deepest weakness and humiliation, how much more now that he possesses a position of power and exaltation. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He's, He's commenting on this. He says, let us take comfort in the thought that we have in Jesus a savior of matchless tenderness, matchless sympathy, matchless consideration for the condition of his believing people. Let us never forget his words. And here he quotes Mark 3. Whoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and sister and mother. He says, for the heart that even on the cross felt for Mary is a heart that never changes. Jesus never forgets any that love him. And even in their worst estate remembers their need. No wonder that Peter says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You see, what what we see in this text is that believers possess a strong bond of family unity. And Jesus can say to his disciple, his beloved disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, he took care of her needs. What about us? Do you, do you view the people in this room as your family? As your brother and sister in Christ and, and feel that, the weight of that? You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's what we do. We serve together. We grieve together. We rejoice together. Do you have affection for people? I didn't say, can you tolerate people in this room? You know, sometimes we're, we're happy if we can do that. No, it, it really, there's, there's something deeper here. We, with our common faith in Christ, it calls us to a deeper relationship and commitment to one another. And you know, as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, this really is a picture of our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. And as we, as we celebrate the supper, let me just remind you of some of, the, some of the truths from this morning that we talked about. How Jesus humbled himself and left heaven's glory to redeem a people for himself. That he is the the great high priest who offered himself on our behalf. 
and how God has exalted him because he is the unique son of God who makes intercession for us. And that he is all compassionate, the all compassionate son who loves us even to the end. But you know, just the day before Jesus says these words to Mary and to John, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And you'll remember that he, he took the bread and to symbolize what would happen, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the, my blood, the new covenant in my blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, this, this is a meal, this, this celebration, this table is open to all who have confessed Jesus as the Lord and Savior who have been baptized and who are walking in fellowship with God and with others. It's open to all. But it is a family celebration, a family meal. And so if you have not embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, I would ask you not to partake. But I would, I would urge you, I would exhort you to call out to God the mercy that is offered when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. God is willing to forgive if you confess your sins and you trust in the finished and perfect work of Jesus on the cross. Call out to him. But as we, as we celebrate the supper, Paul says, or as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.